Welcome to Voices of Experience for Wednesday, and uh, we're back on the air. We have uh, Eric Crema in the studio. He's going to be uh, first up today talking about mortgages. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. It's uh, I think it's going to be a great interview. Hope people like it. Uh, it's sort of an interesting take from a woman who runs a business called Mortgage Moms. Mortgage Moms. And yeah. She's from California, correct? Correct, correct. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm repositioning myself. There's a I don't know if you know, there's a big yellow orb in the sky what, today. Is that called the sun? <laughs> I think so. I, That's right I in my eyes. It. Right. <laughs> um, you know, through the smoke. Remember the last yeah. weeks before this, uh, you couldn't see that because of the smoke. It's a happy sight. It's back. a happy sight. It sure is. How and, about uh, you? You've got some great interviews today. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, going to be interesting. One comes from over 20 years ago, and uh, people who are huge Husky fans... I'm a cougar, but I step aside, and generally what I am, as far as a fan goes, if we're not playing the Huskies, Mm -hmm. I kind of want the Huskies to win. Yeah. And a lot of cougars are like that, too. Some, no, no way, and there are Huskies like that, too. But nonetheless, uh, I had an interview with Coach Don James, and uh, he was the University of Washington head football coach from, I think, 1975 1992, the winningest coach in the University of Washington football history, and uh, he had retired when I did the interview with him. I re-listened to it, and I said, i got to play this again, because he provided some interesting insights into college football. He made some projections going forward. So that is going to be coming up in just a few moments. My uh, segment on voices in history, we're starting with 1969. It's a TV show that is directed to children. It debuted the week in 1969, this week in 1969, and it has become the most widely viewed children's program in the world. Wow. You may know that one. Uh, The one-hit wonder for this week comes from 1992. This was one of the fastest-hit songs to reach number one in European countries. It never reached Mm. number one in the United States, but ended up at a respectable Number nine. So that's coming up at the end of the show. Okay. Um, I had an interview with a gentleman by the name of Chef Alex Hitz, and he's talking about preparing for parties during the holiday season. He's got some great dishes he talks about, but mainly what he what got my interest in it was that lowering the stress level mm. when you're having parties, whether it's family, friends, uh, you're doing it for your colleagues and work have some fun with it. And I think he gave some really good tips there. And I had to call back pollster Stuart Elway. I wanted to talk to him about uh, the election and uh, what's his takes on it. And when I uh, talked to him about doing it yesterday, I didn't think we would get the outcome that we're talking about today, which uh, I asked him to really come up with, let's say, three or four takeaways that he has on this election. Uh, that's what I like about w- what you do with this show. So you're going to, you've already interviewed him about sort of a, his predictions and talked about some things to look for. And now it's happened and you're bringing him back. A lot of times it's just a one-way street for, for pundits and things like that. They'll come on and talk about, here's what I think is going to happen. Then you never hear from him again, unless they're dead right, right? So it's kind of nice you're bringing them back. Right. I've always learned to say, I don't know if I'm right about this or not. Always have that (laughs) hedging point because that's kind of the way the world is. I learned a long time ago to 
actually saying all these things that you think you know what's going on. <laughs> and especially now, I had no idea. <laughs> so anyhow, we're going to be uh, talking to him later in the hour. So I hope you hang for that and everything else we have going. And uh, we'll be back with my interview from 22 years ago with Coach Don James. So I just want to let you know and tee this interview I had with Don James. I asked him the first question, which I think is most important, and I asked pretty much all my guests this, and how did he become interested in his career, and how did he end up as being a football coach? Uh, well, when I was uh, growing up, I, I played high school football in Ohio, and uh, in our particular town, Masson, Ohio, was uh, very famous for, for high school football, and Paul Brown, the former coach of the Browns and Bengals, uh, was the coach there in the 30s. I just, I, you know, football was fun and important, and uh, I idolized my coaches, and uh, when I when I got into high school and saw what they were like, they were, they were doing what I really wanted to do. And then when I went to college, uh, I just I just upgraded uh, my goals uh, rather than coaching high school to coaching college. What do you think the biggest game is that you ever coached? Well, there were a lot of big games. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is what game did we win uh, that, that saved my job? <laughs> and, uh, you know, that would probably go back to the 77 season. We started out 1-3 and three and we went down and played Oregon. We were actually underdogs, and uh, we won that game and then went on to win a, a championship. So, you know, the championship game or the Rose Bowl, uh, then you'd probably go back to the uh, national championship game against Michigan and the Rose Bowl. You know, that's the game that, uh, you know, that probably brought the most recognition to the uh, University of Washington. How about the most memorable game? Well, there were memorable games. Uh, even when I was at Kent State uh, in 1972, we won the only conference championship in the history of the school, and that's before or since. They haven't won one since. But uh, we beat Toledo on the road, and that was uh, that was an incredible evening. The, the first Rose Bowl here, you know, we we won our game against Washington State, but we didn't know in, for a week, and you know, if, uh, if if we would go to the Rose Bowl or down to Texas, but that was probably the most memorable game that we didn't play in. Oh, that's the UCLA USC one, yeah. the field goal. Yeah. I remember that and, one. Uh, so you know, I, the Orange Bowl victory against Oklahoma was uh, incredible victory. We were a couple touchdowns underdogs. First Rose Bowl, we were underdogs. It's Michigan and one. And, uh, well, there are a lot of those. <laughs> what about the Nebraska series? I tell people now, you know, down in Arizona, we spend the winter down there, and, and there's some Nebraska fans. And uh, I, I said, you know, the last time they lost at home in 91, that was us. And, uh, you know, that was a memorable game there. What are your fondest memories in coaching college football? Oh, I think it was just the overall, you know, the people you dealt with, the players, the coaches, the uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, taking a team in the spring. Uh, this was always a fun time uh, that they're going through right now. They're in the winter program preparing for spring practice, and, and just they're, they're going to build the 1998 team, and uh, that was always fun. And once you got into the season, it was the week-to-week strategy. Now, how about your greatest disappointments? Well, I don't think there's any question that one game that was the biggest disappointment in my 18 years at the university was the loss to the Cougars in 82. Uh, I think it was 82 season. We had, we had the Rose Bowl sewed up. And I think it had been the third straight Rose Bowl again. And uh, we were heavily favored against WSU. And we were a much better team. And went over and got upset. I recall that game, 24-20. Yeah. I yeah, believe it pe- was. People still blame Chuck Nelson. You know, people don't remember that you don't get four or five points from a field goal. You only get three. That was his only miss of the season. <laughs> Coach, what do you think about the future of college football? key thing is to make the game safer and easier to officiate as far as the actual game itself. 
And then uh, the rest of it, a lot of it has to do with cost containment now, gender equity. There's, a, there's hours and hours spent, you know, with this balance of budgets and, uh, and, and women's sports. And, you know, the cost containment, we saw reductions in staff and reductions in salary and uh, scholarships, and that will probably always be out there as an issue. Finally, Coach, what can we expect in your future? Well, I've really enjoyed retirement. We, uh, we, we spend time here and in, in, in uh, Seattle and also in uh, Tucson, we have uh, six grandkids, soon to have seven, and uh, most all all six of the kids now we have are active in sports, so we're going to Little League game, to swimming, to basketball, to tennis, to baseball, it's just been fun. Well, Coach Don James, thank you very much for spending time with us. Thanks, Paul. All right, so that's a legendary coach, and I think he earned that. Coach Don James, again, who coached at the University of Washington from 1975 to 1992, and uh, his total wins while be, had as being head coach was 150 wins and 60 losses. So that's pretty amazing. Sure is, and what a perfect time to have that interview. Fall, crisp, clean air, always right. makes me think football. Yeah, and the Apple Cup is coming up in a few <laughs> weeks, dun, dun, and dun. Uh, that's after we take care of, I'm saying we, Washington State, <laughs> takes care of Arizona State this week, Arizona, and then the Huskies. Interesting that he talked about uh, the game in 1982, and he said that the Cougars knocked the Huskies out of the Rose Bowl. And he's right. We did, and I was at that game. And we weren't that good. And we actually won that game, and I was shocked, as everybody else. However, the year before, 1981, the Huskies knocked us out of the Rose Bowl at Husky Stadium. I was away from that game. I wasn't even in the country when it happened, but... Uh, I got back. Well, actually, I knew the score before I got back. But anyhow, we would have been in the Rose Bowl that year, and it had been since 1933 since we had been in our previous Rose Bowl. So that was a big hit for us as well. So that kind of intensified the rivalry. <laughs> also, I like to ask questions about the, your future and the future of college sports, and I'll ask that about uh, anybody I interview. And uh, he said that the game should become safer, and I think he's ahead of his time on that, and certainly head injuries have become a big issue since then, but I don't think it was really much discussed then. Um, saying it should become easier to officiate, he didn't expand on that. I don't know exactly what he uh, you know, had in mind for that, uh, but he also talked about cost containment, and um, that's something that really didn't come true. I mean, College football, sports now, the billions of dollars right. we're talking about then. I think then it was you know maybe still in the millions or something. But uh, I wonder what he would think of nil, the name, image, and likeness. Right. What he would think about the transfer portal that's going on now. I'm sure it would be head-spinning for him as well. Uh, one other thing I wanted to uh, give really a lot of credit to Don James is that I was quite young growing up, and getting into college football and sports, I remember that the Rose Bowl, and it was a Pac-8 at the time, it was actually the Pac-4 or 3. It was UCLA, USC, and Stanford. They went to every Rose Bowl and played the Big Ten every year from 1964 to 1977. So the North really wasn't a factor in going to the Rose Bowl. It was actually, as I said, it was the Pac-3. And um, what was really good is when Don James got to the Rose Bowl in 1978 and shocked Michigan and beat them, then Washington became a regular visitor to the Rose Bowl. 
And I think it really turned the uh, Northwest into a college football hub, which it really hadn't been before. Right. So he deserves a lot of credit for that. And I think Washington State and Oregon and Oregon State benefited from that. That's just my thought. Maybe people think I'm crazy on that. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, that's what I believe. Um, but he left the program abruptly in August 22nd, 1993, because the PAC-10 then placed sanctions on the University of Washington. I remember that, yeah. And it was a little strange. Remember, it had to do with the quarterback, Billy Joe Holbert, mm -hmm. who apparently got a loan from someone to buy a car. And he, it was never substantiated whether this happened or not, or whether it was actually illegal, whatever happened. I didn't get jumped that much into it. But he just said, I'm done. Yeah. You know, I'm out of here. And he quit like two weeks before the season. And a lot of people, you know, don't feel good about that. And Don's James legacy that he left the program hanging. I don't know mm -hmm. about that or not. But um, one thing he did say, and this is on Wikipedia, so I've got this, uh, some of this information from there. But in a 2006 interview with Blaine Newman in the Seattle Times, he said um, his resignation saved his life. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so he was probably stressing about something beyond just the day-to-day -day -day stress of being a, 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 you know, a top coach. Right. There must have been some things, or maybe he saw some writing on the wall that he's like, I don't want to be a part of that world. I, I'm fine here, but I don't want to go down this where, you know, I don't know. I'm, it's conjecture. That's right. I, I have no idea, but that was yeah. a pretty powerful statement. Because sure. He's always, to me, came across as a very calm. Yes, level-headed. Level-headed. You know, you could even say boring guy, but I don't mean that <laughs> negatively. It's yeah. good to be boring when you're coaching a team. You settle people down. I yeah. mean, so that's part of it. But to see that statement, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly what he meant. But anyhow, I'm just glad I took that out of the memory vault of uh, interviews I've had. So, I love it. Uh, Great interview. Well, let's move on. And uh, we're going to come up with uh, Mortgage Mom in just a few moments with Eric Crema. And welcome to this edition of Spotlight on Success. I'm Eric Crema. This program airs Wednesdays in the 3 o'clock hour on KKNW AM 1150 and Kixie 880 AM as well as podcasts. So however you're accessing this show, I want to say thank you for your time and attention as you listen. I have in studio via Zoom Debbie Marcoux, who is CEO of Mortgage Mom Radio. I wanted to talk to her about her business and maybe look at some market situations and hopefully give us some guidance as to where all this craziness is going that we've been hearing about. So with that, I want to welcome to the studio again via Zoom, Debbie Marcoux. How are you, Debbie? I am great. Thank you so much for having me on today. You are welcome, and thanks for your time. Uh, let's get right into it. Maybe give a quick background of how you got into uh, the real estate industry and um, built this company and, and what that was like. So uh, actually in uh, about 1993, I was a high school student and getting ready to get into college and trying to figure out, you know, how was I going to pay for school? My parents were real estate agents at the time. Uh, and so they had me just start 
going into their office, helping them with their business, calling, scheduling appointments, running the MLS, uh, calling clients back and making sure that they were, you know, all ready to go to go see the showings, answering the phones when they were gone, sitting in the open houses, <laughs> you know, bored at 16 years old. And so I actually started taking some classes at the junior college uh, for real estate and thought, you know, that might be a great place uh, to do some real estate on the side, sell a couple properties, pay for college. There you go. And so that's really how I got into it. I, I passed my test at about 17 and I had to wait until my 18th birthday to get that license in my hand. And then I transitioned into mortgage in 2002. So, you know, I've kind of grown up in it. <laughs> uh, for real. Uh, I mean, no yeah. kidding. Uh, and, yeah. you know, being in real estate and in the, in the mortgage, it's, it's a full-time job. I mean, you're getting calls from people. A lot of times I would imagine they're stressed out, you know, about maybe it's an interest rate, maybe it's uh, closing papers, or they just have a question. And, and uh, it seems to me, at least from my own experience being the consumer, you kind of just pick up the phone and make that call no matter what time of day. You do. And and they do say that, you know, on top of divorce and death, uh, buying a property is one of the most stressful things that somebody will ever do in their life. And trust me, we feel that stress on the other end, being the person that's taking care of you. So it is a very stressful job. It is a full-time job. So uh, needless to say, you know, the idea of going to school and working it part-time was not really what happened. It really turned into a full-time venture and I got a lot of college done, but it was a lot of online college. It wasn't in person like I thought it would be. Well, you, I, I hear what you're saying. It, it seems to me too, that beyond just the technical experience, you almost have to have this sort of um, counselor experience where, where you're, you're kind of talking people off the ledge a little bit. Yeah, and that's really where Mortgage Mom Radio started, to be honest with you. I had been in the business for numerous years. So in 2016 is when I actually started Mortgage Mom Radio. And I decided that being being younger in the business, I was always, you know, the, the youngest one at the office. And, uh, you know, everybody was always calling me kid. And, you know, but because of that, for whatever reason, we all draw a particular kind of client to us based on our personalities. And the majority of my clients over the years have been first-time buyers. And so what I realized is that I got a lot of phone calls from real estate agents that were asking me to save the deal, save the day. Uh, the client needs to bring in more money than they expected. The interest rate is higher than what they were told. They didn't understand what the payment was going to be. They didn't even know about closing costs. And so that's what really got me to Mortgage Mom Radio was the education factor. I wanted to make sure that I was bringing education to the people that I was working with and that they were educated before they walked into the transaction, which is very difficult if you've never done it before. You know, there's some things that you can read and you can hear, and there's a lot of people out there that are telling you, you know, pay my fee and come and check out their system or whatever, sure. but that's not education. That's not teaching you what are closing costs? What are they for? What is the interest rate? How is the payment calculated? Uh, what is a home you know, inspection versus an appraisal? That's where the show really originated was the education piece. I actually heard a commercial from you, uh, voiced by you on a, on a competing station. And that's how I, I got interested into learning more about, uh, first of all, I love the name Mortgage Mom Radio. And uh, I, I liked the way that you presented yourself on some of your ads that you were doing. So uh, I find it interesting that you go right to, again, that education, because I, I bet you've had clients that are multiple times clients, right? They keep yeah. coming back to you or they give you a referral. 
Absolutely. And so instead of going the traditional route of a commercial that throws out an interest rate and call us, we've got the best rates, we're going to give you no closing costs. Uh, nobody can quote a rate to somebody. Everybody has a different credit score. Everybody's putting a different down payment. Everybody's buying a different type of property. Condominiums are going to have a higher interest rate than a single family. I can't throw an interest rate out uh, and feel good about myself to get that person to call me. That's just not what I do. So I go after the education piece. We want what's best for you and your family. And that's really our slogan. We're here to bring you to the next level, create your home ownership, then create your real estate portfolio. And you need to learn and understand in order to do that. Now, prior to coming on the air here, uh, you had mentioned that you're uh, in California, but uh, able to sell or license within, is it 16 states? 13 13 states. states. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Washington is obviously one of those states. Uh, We have seen an amazing craziness, I should say, uh, on all business uh, levels these last three, four years. Uh, And and not the least of which is interest rates in the way that they've now suddenly come up. Can you speak to the way it was just say three years, three, four years ago, and bring us to where we are now and maybe a look to the future? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if we go back to 2017, 18, 19, interest rates were really in uh, the mid fives to high fours, kind of depending on where we were at in the cycle. Even at the uh, end of 18, we were probably at interest rates that had hit 6%. So a lot of people very quickly can have amnesia to that and not realize where interest rates were really on an average. But when interest rates started to hit 3%, 2.5%, there were some people that got a 15-year fixed rate at you know, 1.99. You know, that was a big number that everybody was throwing out there. Uh, it just went insane. You can't get a loan for that kind of money, right? It was almost right. free money. Right. So obviously we saw everybody and their mother did their refinances to take advantage. We had a buying frenzy that went you know, uh, beyond anything that anybody could have expected when the uh, pandemic came to us and they shut us down originally and they said you got stay at home orders we thought oh my goodness how are people going to sell homes how are the real estate agents going to show homes and so we were really expecting doom and gloom and then all of a sudden it just went absolutely insane and everybody has seen you know double digit appreciation in their homes and you know that was all very amazing But obviously now with interest rates coming back up, things are slowing down. We are going to see some depreciation. Uh, That's just, you know, it's par for the course. Every 1% in interest rate will drop your qualifying by about 10%, what you can afford, your affordability. So if interest rates in October of 2021, which is where we, you know, we're November 1st right now, but let's say November 1st, if, if November 1st of 2021, interest rates were three and a half percent and the interest rate today is seven percent or seven and a quarter you've lost three to four percent in the interest rate which is going to be 30 to 40 percent of your buying power so if your home is worth a million dollars and that's what you're looking to buy one year ago you could have afforded that today you're looking at seven hundred thousand interesting so Right. It, it, so it is it is a huge shift. And there's for that reason, a lot of buyers have put looking for homes on hold. Um, somebody that would naturally in the course of time be ready to move up, sell their home and go buy another is 
choosing to stay put where they're at because it's less expensive to stay in the home that they're in. So we have kind of this battle going on right now in the industry where there's a lot of homes that are going on the market. There's a lot of sellers pulling homes back off the market because they're not willing to reduce prices. They feel their home is worth what it is worth. And there's a lot of buyers that can't necessarily get what they need. So what we're going to see in the future is really going to kind of have to play out. No crystal ball. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate your expertise and the good work that you're doing down there at Mortgage Mom Radio. Congratulations on your success. And I can just tell from your energy, uh, you really put a lot into your business and into your clients. So thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. How about a, a really quickly a way people can learn more about your company? You know, the easiest thing to do is to just go to the website, go to mortgagemomradio.com. Don't forget the radio. Uh, so it's mortgagemomradio.com and you can get everything that you need from there, all the contact information, emails, everything you need. Perfect. Mortgagemomradio.com. Thanks again, Debbie. Have a great week. And for those of you who are listening to this edition of Spotlight on Success, thank you so much for your time. We'll be back with another edition next week here on Kixie 880 and KKNW AM 1150 and where you get your favorite podcasts. Debbie Marcoux is licensed by the Department of Financial Innovation and Protection under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act, NMLS ID 237 926. You just received some startling news. You're going to need brain surgery. But the doctor also says your prospects for total recovery are excellent. The doctor is very confident with his prognosis. He's performed hundreds of similar surgeries during his career. Who would you choose, this doctor or another doctor who's never performed this type of surgery? If the doctor who's performed similar surgeries is your choice, then experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Welcome back to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and um, that was a very interesting interview, Eric. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I really enjoy talking with uh, Debbie. She's she's really passionate about what she does. And I, her backstory of her working, you know, with her parents in the real estate agency all the way up through now having her own. Um, I, I just like meeting people like that that have, uh, have longevity in, in whatever they do. They have such wisdom. You know what I call it? Hmm. A voice of experience. There you go. I always have to bring it back to that, okay? That gives me a wide berth. I can do whatever I want with that. But, of course, she qualifies in that area. Sure, absolutely. You know, I knew you were doing this interview, so I was perusing the Seattle Times on uh, Sunday, and I came across an article by James Sloan. Okay. And uh, he's a columnist with the Seattle Times. And uh, he was talking about real estate, and he also suggested some things you should do when you're trying to find a real estate agent. Now I've purchased many homes over my life and there's a couple of these couple of these tips though I wish I had been aware of. Sure. And the first one is that you should really interview 3 to 5 agents when you're looking to 
buy property, a home or whatever it is, just like you're interviewing someone for a job or a company. I never thought of really that. Mm. It's like, hey, this person's good. And I go out and get them or I run into them or I drive into their office. I want to buy a home here in West Seattle. Yeah. But to do that, to, to actually get proactive and, and interview the agents, also ask, are they licensed? Now, I assumed that every one of them were licensed, but if you have to ask that question, that means that maybe they're not. Hmm. So uh, I thought that was a, a very good tip. Do they have a clean record? Now, you can Google the name of a real estate agent after you've checked them out yourself. Sure. And then you can uh, find out about them, give their name, agent, because the state does keep track of the individuals who have been a real estate agent for a long time, and uh, they will publish if they've received formal complaints from unsatisfied customers, and uh, have they been subject to disciplinary action before? I didn't know that. Didn't know that as well. So um, let's see what else. How seriously... Does your agent consider the risk? Are they willing to share the upsides and the downsides and the unknowns of your possible future purchases or what you're purchasing now? Will they give you the pros and cons? You know, next door, there's a coal plant or something like that. You know what I mean? You may want to look somewhere. Other, of course, you know, the winds only come your way 30% of the time, so it's not a big deal. Um, what do past clients say? Never thought about this. Go on and... Um, Ask them, I'd like to hear some clients that you've had before, and I want to call them, get in touch with them, and most will give you those if you ask. That's so, really uh, good advice. Uh, yeah, definitely. So, you know, just some ideas. Do they have the capacity to support you? I mean, uh, if they're too small a team, they may be overstretched, whatever. So uh, I just thought that was uh, really good to add on what you had today about you, uh, yeah. buying some real estate. And I think that kind of advice is important now more than ever. As interest rates are going higher, uh, inventory is still very hard to come by. Um, now, it might be coming, becoming more of a buyer's market, but still, you want to get as much bang for your buck as possible. And a knowledgeable real estate agent, I think, is a great way to go because they know the area. Right. Um, and it just, they don't have to be in the industry for four decades, but... You know, do your research and, and get the best fit for you in, in, in your tactic for either buying or selling a home. Absolutely. And uh, it's Thank always you. a moving target. Yeah. I thought we would just jump right into Voices in History segment today. Let's are you it. ready? I'm ready. Okay. Eric, are you ready? Absolutely. Both Eric's are ready. <laughs> Am I ready? We'll find out. We'll find out. So here we go. Um, on November 9th, 1989. East German officials opened the Berlin Wall, allowing travel from east to west Berlin. Do you remember that? 100%. The following day, Germans began to tear down the wall. And uh, Ronald Reagan once said, tear down this wall. Well, I guess they listened to him years later and started <laughs> to tear down that wall. What I didn't know, and both of you tell me if you knew this. Okay, here we go. A decision was made a week before by Hungarian officials that opened the border between Hungary and Austria. Okay. And uh, that ended the purpose of the Berlin Wall since East Germany citizens could now go through Hungary into Austria to get into West Germany. I didn't know that. No. Yeah, no, I didn't know that either. So there you go. I just thought the story began when the wall was coming down, 
And uh, but it happened because, yeah, you know, when that occurred. So they just said, hey, give up and uh, it's over. <laughs> well, they wanted to keep some of the wall up because remember Hasselhoff, David Hasselhoff got on top of that wall and sang that song. Do you remember that? I vaguely remember you that. You can YouTube that all day yeah. long. Yeah, it's, he was really big in Germany. Still is. He still is yeah. big in Germany. Wow. Yeah, now, now it comes yeah, back to me. It so. Okay, I will do Bring that. you right back. Okay. Leave it to entertainment, though, to come up with some way to, like, you know, monopolize, monopolize on a situation. You know, right. Of course. It's about them. <laughs> Let's do a concert. Let's do it. About us. Any, any opportunity. Um, on November 10th, 1969, Sesame Street debuts as a TV oh, show that would teach generations of young children the alphabet and how to count, and then it made its broadcast debut. Then I didn't know it was that long ago, 1969. I thought would, if you would have asked me, 1980 or 1970 or something, I didn't realize. It, That's it a long that time. Way. Yeah. I'm curious, though, Eric, did you grow up on it? Did you watch I it? I did, yeah. Did you have a favorite character? I, I think it was Grover. Yeah, Grover was good. Yeah. I like Grover. Yeah, Grover was pretty funny. That and the, uh, uh, oh, who's the guy in the garbage can? That's horrible. Grouch. Uh, Oscar the Grouch, uh, yes. Oscar the Grouch. How about you? You're leaving me in the dust here. <laughs> I have no idea. I just, Yellow Bird or Big Bird, whatever he is. We were watching yes, the business channel. Bird. Oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> right. that's me. All right. With your calculator. Yeah. Well. <laughs> the McNeil Lair Report. <laughs> Eric. Yeah. Eric Ryder, I got to say to you, though, you got it wrong. I always ask both Eric's, yeah. do they know this? What did you say? Howdy Doody? Well, I mean, I thought you said 59 for some reason, so ah. I just guessed Howdy Doody, but 69, yep. Okay. All right. Sesame fair enough. Street. I don't want to embarrass you, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I... I occasionally get things wrong, <laughs> believe it or not. That's the first. On November 12, 1954, Ellis Island shuts its doors after processing more than 12 million immigrants since opening... In 1892, with America's entrance into World War II, immigration declined, and Ellis Island was used as a detention center for suspected enemies. No Didn't idea. know that. Nope, no How idea. How many things we don't know in this world? This is what this <laughs> kind of shows me, too. Um, on a more local level, and I got this courtesy of HistoryLink.org, the Port of Olympia turns 100 this week. Actually, on November 7th, what would that be, two days ago, 1922, it opened up. This was Washington's 17th public port out of a current total of 75. I had no idea we have 75 ports in this state. No, uh, but, you know, when you think about it, there's even, say, ports along the Columbia. Yeah. So the port of Kennewick and and these sorts of things. Longview. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it makes sense. I, I'm kind of surprised that it's only 75 with all the water in western Washington yeah. that we have. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, 17th uh, was Olympia. He said. Yeah. yeah. There's, there a, there's a week out of every year where I have a port right outside my house. It's right down by the ditch. <laughs> <laughs> Fully loaded with water. Right. Oh, I'll bet. I'll bet. But, yeah, I, I was thinking Port of Seattle. Yeah. Port, you know, or big whatever, Vancouver sure. and whatever. But, yeah, then you say you're right. Down the rivers of the Columbia. They're all ports, so uh, whatever. So there you go. That Great is, um, yeah, for this week. So uh, we have an interesting interview, I think, coming up next. As I said, we talked about uh, what people will be doing for the holidays, and we'll get right to it in just a moment. Chef Alex Hitz is my guest, and his style and specialty is Southern fare with a French flair. 
whether it's a holiday or a Tuesday, he says that you should make every day a special occasion. Now, he has a colorful book. It's called Occasions to Celebrate, Cooking and Entertaining in Style. It is a beautiful book. I'm not much of a chef myself or even a cook, but I do enjoy talking with people who are and uh, can really inspire somebody like me to do something more challenging than I normally do. The holidays are coming up, and I thought it would be a good idea to talk to someone who does this for a living. And, you know, we have been in COVID lockdown for a couple of years now, so many of the doors will be opening that have been closed. What was your path to becoming a worldwide known chef? It was a very convoluted path. It started with cooking school and and a restaurant, and then I went out of the business for a long time. I became a Broadway producer, a movie and TV producer. I designed men's clothing, and I developed residential real estate. And I always missed the kitchen, and I went back into it um, in my mid-30s and the rest is history. When did you really look at wanting to become a chef? Were you like really young when you were a kid or something like that? Or what motivated you to want to do this? Listen, I loved food always as a child. My parents entertained all the time. You know, their parties were great and I loved the process and the food and, you know, everything like that. And once it once it's in you, it's always in you. It's, it's always there. It lies dormant sometimes, and then it comes out sometimes. But it's always in you if if you're exposed to it and love it. What I read is that your specialty, I guess, is that is Southern fare with a French culinary blend. That just seems to me a little bit unusual. Yes, my, my parents were big Francophiles. I grew up there as much as I grew up in Georgia, and I went to cooking school in France. So for my first book and sort of my the food that sort of has defined a career, it's a blend of classic French and Southern together. What would produce the best results in terms of, let's say, doing a dinner party? And, and you do that with like the least effort put into it with the best results. Is that a fair question? Things need to be easy, but don't always look for the least effort. Okay, because everything that's worth doing takes a bit bit of an effort. If you want the least effort, go buy a really good chicken pot pie, some French red wine, turn the lights down, light the candles, and don't run out of wine. And that's going to be a great party with virtually, you know, no cooking effort. But anytime you cook anything, whether you make a salad dressing or just a dessert or anytime you do something more personal, People appreciate it. It pays off. Even the little things, they appreciate exponentially. Any amount of thoughtfulness is amplified. So I always encourage you know people to do a little bit more than just the minimum. If you're a little more ambitious, make sure you do everything ahead of time, two, three days ahead of time, and just heat it up when it's time to serve so that you're not scrambling around, freaking out, popping Xanax when you're guests there because nobody wants to see that. Everything always has to look easy, even though it's not. I guess that's pretty true in other parts of life as well, but uh, that's, that's good advice. Talk about some of your favorite recipes when you're putting together a dinner party, and I guess we'll look at the uh, holiday season coming up. We have uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, that. Is there some advice along those lines? Same advice that I give for whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas or just year-round. Do everything ahead of time, two or three days. 
it makes all the difference in the world. Anything may go wrong. Quite often it does go wrong. Who cares? doesn't matter. You know, you've done the best you can. If something screws up out of your control, it's okay. You know, never stop smiling. But don't be a martyr and don't be stressed out. Enjoy your own parties and do everything ahead of time. And that also will mitigate the screw-ups because you know if something's screwed up if it's done ahead of time, right? Sure. Absolutely. And you were saying like three days, you have time to catch some of the uh, errors before the, the party actually starts. Let's say we're talking about the perfect dinner party. What would your vision be that? Number of people, what to serve maybe, or options there? All of that stuff depends on an, on the occasion. The Fernand Poin, who was a very famous chef and writer in France, always said that perfection is a lot of little things done well. So I don't think there's an absolute perfect for any of these things. If it's a, if it's a seated dinner, 10 people is a nice number. But eight's great, 12's too many. You know, if it's a big, fun, splashy birthday, you know, do a buffet and do it for more people and serve a bunch of different foods and stuff like that. They can all be perfect in their way. They're just not, there's not one absolute solution. Um, if, you, if you're interested in, in menus for every occasion, I'm going to point you to my last book, which was called The Art of the Host, which came out about three years ago, which has got the spot on perfect menu for every occasion and the timing of it. That's a good resource as well. Your latest book, Occasions to Celebrate Cooking and Entertainment with Style, has 100 recipes in it. We certainly can't go through all of those, but do you have a couple you'd like to highlight? There's one that I really think is interesting, which is it's a braised short rib roast. They're not individually portioned like short ribs are. It's a roast that's kept whole and braised until it's spoon tender, and I call it a spoon roast. And that's a big crowd pleaser. Braised meat is a is one of my very favorite things in the world, the flavors, the, the fact that you can do it so often, you know, so much ahead of time, and the flavors are just that much better. So I love that. People have been responding to the beggar's purses with pear, prosciutto, and blue cheese. They seem to, to like those. There's also a white chocolate gingerbread trifle that is, I think, great for holiday entertaining. And then if you want something really easy, but really special, my friend Georgia's Texas sheet cake cookies, which are just about as indulgent as lu- and luscious as any chocolate lover will allow. My wife is a, a pescatarian. Are there any yep. recommendations in the book, or what would you suggest that how she would approach, uh, let's say, reading your book and, and trying to put something together? Interestingly enough, there are only so many ways to to cook a piece of fish, right? Because you can't, can't cook it very long. So what I did for this book is I developed several different vinaigrettes and sauces for broiled fish to make them more interesting. I mean, obviously you can cook them in lemon and butter and that's wonderful and simple and whatever, but I did a, a, a saffron and shallot vinaigrette for broiled fish, a romesco sauce for fish, there's a green sauce for fish, green herb sauce. They're wonderful things for fish that you can serve hot, cold, room temperature like that. I, I think your, your pescatarian wife is going to be, I think she'll be happy with this. Excellent. Anything else before we go? I just want to say thank you for, for having me on your wonderful show. Thank you so much. My thanks to Chef Alec Hitz.
You can Google Alex Hitz to find his book. It's called, again, Occasions to Celebrate, Cooking and Entertaining in Style. Here are some takeaways I took from the interview, just a couple of them. If you have around eight people, maybe 10 max, you can sit them around a table and serve them individually. When you get above that number, you may want to consider doing a buffet style serving. Number two, really like this one, prepare your ingredients and all the things you possibly can do two to three days in advance. Finally, don't freak out if things go wrong. Everybody knows that things happen. Never stop smiling. One more time, the book is called Occasions to Celebrate, Cooking and Entertaining in Style by Alex Hitz. And that is spelled H-I-T-Z. And that's all you need to do. Google Alex Hitz. Stuart Elway, welcome. Hi. I'm, I'm kind of hungry now. Oh, I know. Isn't that pretty uh, good, uh, you know, advice in terms of how to throw a party? What Now, what time and what date are you so, throwing your party for us? Yeah. Uh, the invitations are in the mail. Okay. And um, what's your address? Because maybe some Kixi listeners will want to come. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's in the mail, too. All right. They're in the mail, too. So, um yeah. Well, anyhow, before we get to that and the party information, yesterday was quite a party for the state and the country for many people because the election seemed to be going in a much different direction than it ended up. But on the other hand, it's not like we won the national championship on either side. Um, Still races are up in the air. But let's give the expert like you your time. Let's start with the state first. What in this state uh, happened that you find maybe a little bit surprising or major surprise? Well, I think the thing that's surprising people uh, both here and nationally is that uh, there was there was no red wave. There was a, a quite a bit of chatter. Uh, the, the marquee race here was the U.S. Senate race, and then we, of course, had two congressional races that were contested along with the legislature, but the Senate race got all the most of the attention. And for the last month or so, um, the street wisdom has been that uh, this is going to be really close, and Trish Smiley has a uh, Tiffany Smiley has a chance to uh, pull the upset of the of the new century here, and it didn't come out like that anywhere close. Um, throughout the year, it started out uh, early in the year as, as we've talked. Uh, it did look like a red wave was forming. Then the Dobbs decision uh, uh, on Roe v. Wade sort of stemmed that and, and re-engaged and energized the Democrats. Um, so by about September, uh, well, in July, Patty was Murray was way ahead uh, in our polling and ended up winning that primary by 20 points. Then September, it started to settle back down. And really got to a set back to normal, which in this state is about a 10 to 12 point Democrat advantage. And that's where we ended up in the Senate race right now. She's what, 12, uh, I think 13, 14 points ahead. Uh, and, and in our September poll, we had her 12 points ahead. So um, it's like uh, it, it came out like you might expect here. And then 
in those two congressional races, um, the same thing was happening in the 8th District where Kim Schreier was being challenged and, and, and looked really close, really close. Well, she's pulling that out. And then probably the biggest surprise for people is that um, Perez, uh, I can't say her last name, in the 3rd District, the Democratic, sorry, Democratic candidate um, uh, is leading uh, in a in a district that's been held by a Republican for a decade or so, so um, uh, and it looks like um, Democrats may even increase their lead in the in the legislature instead of losing it as they expected. So, if anything, there was a, a kind of a blue tide here um, to uh, contrast with the the red ripple that's now being called. Uh, Nationwide. Well, hopefully this is uh, it's an amazing turnaround, as you mentioned. But uh, we got about a minute to go, Stuart. And what would you uh, characterize nationally if you could do that? I know it's hard to do in less than a minute, but how would you well, look I, the, in the national? The one part? I like, the one I like best is um, democracy won. <clears throat> the uh, election deniers didn't do very well. Uh, almost all of them lost, um, and, and some of them were quite surprising. Losses in states they hadn't lost, so uh, you know we're, we're going to have an equal, equally evenly divided House and Senate in the in the country. Um, so uh, you know I look forward to a lot of real thoughtful debate and uh, comprehensive legislation. <laughs> oh that. yeah, I'm sure that's going to happen. Yeah. And I just <laughs> saw before this that President Biden was saying I'm going to reach out to the other side and I work with my Republican colleagues, blah, blah. Well, anyhow, I know he has to say that, but uh, yeah, I, I don't see that happening. But uh, it was a good night overall, I will say that. It'll, it'll, yeah, it, he, he defied history. He outperformed both Obama and Clinton and almost everybody else in the midterm elections. Because yeah. if the Republicans do win it, it's going to be by single digits, not the 20 or 40 that they were predicting. Certainly. Stuart, as always, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Anytime. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, we got a few minutes to go. A few minutes. I got about 30 seconds to go. But then the one-hit wonder is just coming up in a few moments. And this happens to be a longer version. So we have to get to it. Again, my name's Paul Casey. Anything you heard about the show, if you'd like to give me a call and leave a message, the number to call is 425-653-1166, 425-653-1166. Quote of the week, many people walk through your life, but only a few leave footprints on your heart. Eleanor Roosevelt.